0: Our call to worship is from Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a song of sense, a psalm of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity! It is like precious oil poured on the head, rang down the beard, rang down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. Let's stand and sing hymn number 280. Our scripture reading is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 beginning verse 15 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to make this a little bit easier by starting with the interpretation of the vision. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. Prescott can come lead us in prayer. The neat thing about Daniel 7 is how the details of the chapter line up with the historical sequence of kingdoms from Daniel's day up through the time of Christ and even as we've seen in Daniel chapter 7 with the times of the apostles and the early church. We saw last time how the four beasts in Daniel 7 symbolized four kingdoms paralleling the same four kingdoms first referenced in Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the metal man statue. First comes Babylon, represented by gold in Daniel 2, and then by a lion in Daniel 7. Next is Medo-Persia, which is the silver in Daniel 2, and the bear in Daniel 7. Then comes Greece, which was bronze in Daniel 2, and of course the leopard in Daniel 7. And the fourth kingdom is iron, symbolizing the terrifying strength and dominance of Rome having ten horns, which, as we saw, are the first ten Caesars, from Julius Caesar up to Vespasian, who was reigning over the Roman Empire when uh, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And this, of course, brought about the end of the old world, the end of the old covenant world, of which Daniel has a lot to say, particularly in chapters 8 and 9. Now, we saw how the clay and the feet of the statue in in Daniel 2 of of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The clay is a reference to the Jews who were to minister within these kingdoms. Remember, the clay is not mixed with the iron. It's something different, something substantially different. And the feet, the, the clay toes, are what the statue stands on as it were to be, as it were, God's people that are holding up this, this, these kingdoms. And now we have in Daniel 7 another parallel, just like the beasts of Daniel 7 parallel the metals we also have this little horn that Daniel sees in his vision of Daniel 7, which is reference to the leadership of Israel, particularly the, the line of the Herods, and also the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, these, this little horn is a wicked and corrupt little horn that makes war against God's saints. We saw, saw last week how, last time how that really correlates to the time of the first century when the Jews stood up and rebelled against God and against their Messiah and made war against the early Christians, persecuting them and putting them to death. And so we have all these parallels between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And we see also that the uh, last time we saw how the beast of Revelation, with its beast from the sea that rises up out of the sea and the beast that rises up from the land, focuses on the same details that we see here with Daniel. Daniel is looking at it from a little different perspective. Remember Daniel is looking at it as a perspective of these kingdoms after Babylon and Persia being future. We see John in Revelation looking the other direction. John's living under the Roman Empire. He's living under that beast and he's looking backward and he sees, what does he see? He says the sea, great sea beast in Revelation 13 looks like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. So he's going in the reverse direction from Daniel's vision which shows us very clearly that, that John is living at the, in the fourth kingdom. puts us in a historical context. And of course, John also was a first-hand witness to how these Jewish rulers, the little horn of Daniel 7, made war against God's saints, even over, overpowering them for a set time in God's plan, just as Daniel saw the little horn overpowering the saints. And of course, Daniel saw that in the end the little horn would be killed and thrown into the fire. And so John wrote about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and Judea who became the adulterous woman who committed adultery with the kings of the earth. So in the end, John says, the prostitute would be burned. And we see that happening in Revelation chapter 13 and following. And interesting, it's interestingly enough, when you go back into the Old Testament, the only punishment for a burning of someone had to do with a daughter of a priest. The daughter of a priest was commanded to be burned if she, if she became a prostitute. And so we have here a very clear identification with Israel who had played the harlot, committing, committing adultery against God and, as it were, joining up with the nations and warring against the saints. And so we see all this in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is seeing this vision of these great and terrible things to come. And I am convinced, as we've seen these parallels, that Daniel and Revelation are intimately related to one another, and both are grounded in real historical events, even though both communicate as we've seen through symbolisms, through apocalyptic imagery, through hyperbole, through these various different things we, we consider as biblical allusions and, and symbolisms. Now, some people who study Daniel recognize these clear sequence, this clear sequence that Daniel sees from the four kingdoms. They recognize the clear sequence of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And I think you should be aware that some people see this so clearly and they have such a different idea of what the Bible is that they end up saying that Daniel did not write this. It is so clear about the details of of how Daniel unfolds that they actually say that Daniel was a book that wasn't written back in the time of the Babylonian captivity. It was written sometime during the Roman Empire because whoever wrote it obviously knew about all these empires. And so they'll say that Daniel is not a book that comes to us as it presents itself to us, but actually was written much later, after the fact, as if he's writing this history and then projecting it back in the past as if it was going to be prophecy. And so you have a lot of people who recognize that this is so clear that they come to the conclusion that Daniel himself did not write this. And it's remarkable to think about that it's so clear that people actually have to go to those lengths to deny what Daniel is really talking about and to deny the implications of what Daniel is doing because it's true that a mere man cannot foresee the sequence of empires to come. That is true. A mere man cannot see the the events of, of, of things to come in this kind of detail, even naming rulers in advance like Cyrus, we see with the other prophets, even with the idea of keeping the sequence in order and naming ten kings. It's remarkable how the historical events match exactly what the book of Daniel talks about. And of course, it's not, it's not possible for a mere human to be able to do that, but as we know by faith, these are visions that were communicated by God himself to Daniel and God does know the future. And so when we look at this, we look at these historical events in Daniel, we should recognize that there is a great evidence for the supernatural origin of our scriptures because it is a remarkable parallel between what Daniel prophesied and what actually came to pass. And so if we mistake what Daniel is talking about, if we make, say we take Daniel and we project it into the far future, or if we take Daniel and and we don't understand what's going on, we end up, one of two things, we end up missing a great evidence for the supernatural origin of our scriptures because everything was fulfilled exactly the way it was, or we make Daniel out to be a babbling fool who really doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, if you start taking Daniel and making it you know Marxism in the 20th, in the nineteenth century and the twentieth century, or you know the the, the uh, Russian Empire or something like that you 've lost you 've lost really the fulfillment in history and therefore you 've lost the supernatural proof that Daniel really comes to us and presents to us with these four kingdoms so I think it 's important to understand Daniel properly, and I, as we saw last time, it also is very important because I believe the first century Christians understood Daniel very well as well. And actually Daniel makes a lot of sense out of the New Testament because you start seeing things going on in the New Testament that Daniel prophesied and explains sort of why Jesus had to come from outside of the the ruling, governing class in Judea and Jerusalem, why he had to be from the outside. It explains lots of these different things that take place, you know, the Great Tribulation. It explains why the Christians were persecuted and explains how all these things came to be. And so we continue on now Last time we focused on the first part of Daniel chapter 7 with Daniel's visions of the beasts. And now that that context has been set, we can examine Daniel's vision of the man. And what I should emphasize here as we begin is that these images of the beasts are corporate images. The beasts here, the four beasts, are, as we saw, referencing four kingdoms. And so you have not just an individual being represented by them. Like, for example, in Nebuchadnezzar, we see a very clear reference to Nebuchadnezzar about the one, the lion, who had two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. In verse 4, that's a clear reference to Nebuchadnezzar, but it, the lion represents the entire kingdom of Babylon as well. And we have a real handicap here because we live in a modern day that is very individualistic. We have this idea that we're all just individuals here, are living on this place called America, to draw the analogy out. That's not the way they thought in ancient times. They were part of their ruler. So a Babylonian was part of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar was a symbol or a reference of the whole body of Babylon. Same thing with Darius the Persian. Darius was the leader of Persia but yet all of Persia was in Darius. That's the way they thought. We don't have that concept because we're so individualistic. But that kind of makes sense out of the Bible when we get to the New Testament. We have all of God's people, the believers, are the body of Christ. Okay, That corporate idea of who we are in Christ is a, a continuation of that ancient mindset. And we, we miss a lot when we don't recognize how the corporate body works. Well, these are corporate beasts representing all of these kingdoms. And that's going to be very important because I think Daniel stays with that thought as we go along in chapter 7. So let's pick up in verse 8. This is the part I kind of skipped over last time because... I wanted to set the context with the onset of empires. Verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. That would have been among the Caesars, which we saw the Herods and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were able to do. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Skipping down to verse 13 So we need to look at Revelation chapter 4 to get a little parallel text here going and understand properly what Daniel's talking about. Revelation chapter 4, we have another scene where a throne is set. This is John speaking. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. See the same parallel? The Ancient Days. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And John's going to get more explicit about who's the one sitting on this throne in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Notice we're back to four beasts again. These would be the cherubic beasts from Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1, which we talked about last time. This is the Lamb. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands And 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them seen. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. You can see that Revelation 4 and 5 is an exposition of exactly what we see in Daniel chapter 7. We have the thousands upon thousands attending him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. That's really what the idea of the scroll there is. The scroll being given to the land that was slain. And he opens the scroll and he begins judgment on the nations. So Daniel chapter 7 is really parallel to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. But Daniel 7 can be difficult to decipher for a few reasons. Who is the Ancient of Days in verse 9? And who is the one like a son of man in verse 13? Notice verse 9, it says, Thrones were set in place, and actually it's Ancient of Days, there's no V there, and Ancient of Days, the name, took his seat. Who's that? And then verse 13, In my vision at night, I saw and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. See, the, the, the interpretation of this passage really hinges on the identification of these two references. And if you look, I believe, if you look with parallel with Revelation, who's sitting on the throne in Revelation, the Lamb slain, I believe the Ancient of Days is Jesus Christ himself, the Divine Son, who took his seat at his ascension. Okay, Remember, Jesus ascended into the heavenlies, and he sat at the right hand of God the Father, joining God the Father on his throne. That happened at the ascension. And I think actually the the reference becomes clear if you start looking at what happens next. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. This is talking about Jesus because who wears white clothes? Actually, this goes back in the Old Testament. Who wears white clothes in the Old Testament? Very important figure. I mean, I know Andre said he wore white clothes at the wedding, officiating the wedding in Libby. Same basic concept. Who wears white clothes in the Old Testament? The high priest wears white linen clothes on a very special occasion in the Old Testament. Now, there's a couple ways we can look at this as well. I think it's clearly not just a divine image here for ancient days. It's Jesus himself because God the Father has never left his throne. You see in verse 9 where it says the ancient of days took his seat. God the Father never left the throne. He is the ruler of the eternal kingdom. And so this is very clearly referring to sitting down of Christ at his ascension. Jesus did leave the throne of his father, humbled himself to become a man. And so Daniel's reference to ancient days, taking his seat is a reference to God the Son, joining his father on the throne in heaven. And I think that's why you see the same thing with John, when John talks about the lamb who was slain, sitting on the throne. So his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. The high priest, that sets a real high priestly context to this passage. White clothing in the Old Testament was worn by the high priest on a very special day in the Jewish calendar. On Day of Atonement, one time a year, before he entered into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the high priest changed into clean linen garments from his outer glorious priestly robe. He changed into linen garments so he could go into the Holy of Holies. And so what we see here is Daniel, I believe, understanding that imagery, understanding that background, would understand that he's making this context here, priestly, referring to Jesus Christ himself. Verse 9, we see his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. That is another connection back to Ezekiel chapter 1 when Ezekiel saw the vision of God's throne with wheels, within wheels, all of them on fire. So there's another connection there, which we talked about last time with Ezekiel 1 and his vision. Actually, I believe Daniel's vision is really the same vision that was given to Ezekiel from a different perspective, from an earthly perspective as opposed to Ezekiel's heavenly perspective. Verse 10, A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him thousands upon thousands attending him 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him saw the parallel in Revelation chapter 5 well a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him does that look familiar to you? in the God's Garden series we talked about Ezekiel's vision of the river remember Ezekiel 47 about the river that flows out from the temple and wherever the river flows there becomes life the, the salt water becomes fresh and, the, and life fills the waters another connection here that Daniel is, is using with, uh, actually it's a mixed connection because you have a river of fire flowing what's the fire reference to? I believe prophetically speaking it's a
1: okay. reference
0: to the Holy Spirit being poured out fire upon the believers at Pentecost the Holy Spirit going out to all the world thousands upon thousands attended him 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court was opened or the court was seated and the books were opened so if you think about this in a chronological sequence, you can understand what's going on here in terms of what's going on in the New Testament: the ascension of Christ, the pouring of outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then the seating and the book's opening, which was a time of judgment, which you have with the gospel. When the gospel goes out into the world, it is a extension of God's judgment. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So think of this chronologically. Daniel seeing a vision of the future to come. The little horn was destroyed in the first century when Rome executed God's fiery judgment of Jerusalem and Judea. But here's where things get interesting in this particular prophecy. It appears that Daniel is following a sequence. Everything lines up fairly well with what we know took place in the first century. But here he speaks about another ascension in the clouds. Look at verse 13. In my vision at night... And by the way, I think think when Paul talks about the night is almost over, the day is almost here, there's a connection here. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority glory sovereign power all peoples nations and men of every language worshipped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed now a lot of people take this as being Jesus the ascension of Jesus Christ in the cloud because you read in Acts 1 Jesus ascends in a cloud but If Jesus is the Ancient of Days, back in verse 9, he's already seated. And if you look at chronologically, it makes more sense to start with the ascension in verse 9, but that means that we have two ascensions in a cloud. If we're meant to be taking this in a chronological prophecy, we have two ascensions. Are there two ascensions in the cloud in Scripture? Well, we tend to think of Jesus as being the one who ascends the cloud and we think that's it. But actually... To understand the context here of the high priest, the vestments of the garments of the high priest, we have to go back to the Old Testament and the Day of Atonement and let's see if there's something, a pattern, in the Day of Atonement that Daniel is following here because I believe that's exactly what's taking place. And what we need to do is go back, get back to Leviticus chapter 16 and we will read about the law of the Day of Atonement and the, the work of the high priest, what the high priest was to do. Leviticus chapter 16. See, our problem is that we do not understand the Old Testament like Daniel understood. And everything I believe that Daniel is working with comes directly out of the Old Testament. And he would have seen this Day of Atonement ritual take place before he was taken to Babylon, and it would have stayed with him. Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body, he is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. In Daniel chapter 8, we're going to start reading about goats and a ram. And I believe actually this is, this is a source for that as well. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain so what's going on here he's to take the incense and put it on the burning coals and it makes smoke and so when he goes and enters into the holy place, he takes the smoke with him and he goes into the holy place with the cloud, so to speak. That's the first ascension. And Hebrews actually talks about the high priest and get very very detailed commentary on this with the Day of Atonement and the process of the high priest, who, what the high priest was to do in Hebrews chapter 9 especially. So that's the first ascension, the first ascension in the cloud. And then it says in verse 13... He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. It is inside the Holy of Holies. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. And so that's the first ascension. High priest goes in, takes the blood from the bulls, and, and sprinkles on the altar for his own sin. That's the first ascension. Now, verse 15, we begin with the second. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. That means he has to come out and he has to go do this again. Take this blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. First ascension for the priest. Second ascension for the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. And so we have in Leviticus chapter 16 two ascensions into the holy place with clouds one for the high priest by himself and the next time he takes the blood of the goats and what do the goats symbolize in the sacrifice the goats are taken in place of the people right the life of the goat is in the blood and the blood of the goat is taken into the Holy of Holies representing all of Israel going with the priest in fact the high priest represents the people and so he enters the Holy of Holies on their behalf And so if this is the connection here, it explains a lot why Daniel would have two ascensions in Daniel chapter 7. And if you look at it that way, everything starts making chronological sense. Because in the New Testament, there are two ascensions in a cloud. The one in Acts 1.11, in Jesus Christ ascending to the throne of God, gets all the attention. But they were waiting on another ascension in clouds they were waiting on the second ascension, the ascension of the people into the Holy of Holies, being led into the presence of God. The double ascension is what Daniel refers to. First, the Ancient of Days took his seat, which is the ascension of Jesus. Then God's people as one man, as one new man. Paul talks about the new man being formed in the image of God in Ephesians chapter 2. Then, God's people, as one new man, ascend into God's presence in a cloud. Like I said, this helps to understand the imagery here in Daniel 7 is corporate. So, the new man is singular. And that's the way Daniel kind of presents here, and that's what gets a lot of people thinking it's Jesus Christ. But actually, the believers are being made into one new man, one new body, the body of Christ in the New Testament and that body of Christ is going to ascend in a cloud as well. In fact, that's what they were waiting on in the the New Testament. And so we have here, the the key here is the Day of Atonement ritual law involved two ascensions of the high priest. And I believe that that's what Daniel sees with these two different, the the sitting of the Ancient of Days and the ascending of one who is like a son of man. See the difference here? Who is son of man? Jesus is Son of Man. We read about that in the Gospels. He is Son of Man. And then you have one who is like a Son of Man. Of course, believers are ones who are like Jesus. The new man is made in the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And so even Paul talked about the second ascension in a cloud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I believe this is what Paul is is referring to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A very familiar passage to many, many Christians today, although I think very few understand it. First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse 16: "For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are alive, still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds." to meet the Lord in the air. And it's an unfortunate translation in the English that they have air there. Actually, it's sky, as in heaven. To meet the Lord in the presence of the Lord in heaven. But that's the second ascension. That's the man, the body of Christ, who is going to ascend in the clouds. And what they were looking forward to in the first century was this taking place very soon. Daniel actually says that it takes place Notice in verse 11, we continue this chronologically, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority. Remember, all authority on heaven and earth had been given to Christ. They had been stripped of their authority with the, with the resurrection and the ascension, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And that's where, in AD 70, Daniel foresaw the, ascent, the second ascension of the body of Christ in clouds. So that's a little different take on this probably than, than if you read commentaries on Daniel they tend to, to, to see everything here in terms of the single ascension. But I believe if you look at the context with the high priestly context and the details of the Day of Atonement you'll see there's two ascensions first the high priest and then the people with the high priest. And Bo talked about what it means to be like a son of man last week, preaching from the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount really is all about. It's about God's people who live like God the Son. They are like the one, they're like the Son who once lived on earth. Now let's check and see if this all works out here. If we go from verse 15 on and just read it, I think if you keep that in mind of the two two ascensions in a cloud, it actually makes perfect sense. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever forever. And ever, notice how now we're talking about a kingdom, saints, the body, and yet before it was the one like a son of man who was going to possess the kingdom. Verse 19. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, the most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. You should see the Great Tribulation right there. The saints were given over to the persecuting powers for a time. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. You see, when Jesus ascended to the throne he possessed the kingdom and then at the second ascension 40 years later the body of Christ was joined and you have the saints receiving the kingdom. He gave me this explanation the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth it will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. Uh, There's an unfortunate English uh, translation problem with that. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit... Remember, that's what Revelation is talking about. Revelation 4 and 5 is talking about the seating of the court. And His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. Notice how Daniel flips from the plural to the singular in mid-sentence. It's like he's going back and forth between the body of Christ and the saints. The singular body of Christ, the church, and the saints. That's what he's referencing. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. We see all this come to pass in the New Testament as the Jews instigated the persecution of the church under the authority of the little horns, the Herods, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, all the way across the Roman Empire. But Daniel could rest in the fact that the saints would be victorious at the end. This vision disturbed Daniel. And if you think about Daniel's position, his context, you can understand why it would disturb Daniel so much. Because what he foresaw as a godly Jew, he foresaw the time when the Jews themselves would make war against God's saints. And that was disturbing to Daniel. That was very, very disturbing to Daniel not just the fact that the saints were under attack because the saints had been under attack at various points in time all through history, but it was who was given authority for a time to persecute the saints. And that was the little horn powers. those were the Jews. And we saw that we see that come to fulfillment in the first century, when the Jews persecuted the Christian Church all across the Roman Empire. But in the end, this is God's kingdom that has always operated in the world since Adam made manifest in Daniel's day in Babylon and Persia that grew and strengthened during the time of Greece that Jesus preached during the rule of Rome and that eternal kingdom would be given over to the saints at God's appointed time. And by the way, the first century Christians understood the appointed time. They understood the chronology of Daniel's vision. Now the beauty of studying Daniel is that it gives us perspective and context for our own lives as well. And the whole chapter hinges on this. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. You know what that means? That means we possess God's kingdom. It is ruling all things right now through us and through all of God's people around the world. But, and here's the important thing, this is not a kingdom like those four kingdoms that came before. This is not a kingdom that that rules by brute force or military might. No kingdom has ever been able to last forever and ever merely by military might or brute force. In fact, you will see with the American Empire, the American Empire will not last by brute force or by military might. Just like these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, all fell. So will the American Empire. But there will be a kingdom that continues on. No, our kingdom rules by the spread of the gospel. Our kingdom reigns by acts of goodness, joy, and peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the kingdom that rules over the nations, causing some to be lifted up for a time and others to be made low for a time. And you play your role, your own personal role, in the rule of God's kingdom as the body of Christ. Now, when we look at these two ascensions, we can see this in every traditional wedding that takes place. The idea of two ascensions is actually involved in the wedding ceremony. You have the groom who's down front, correct? He's already there. And he's glorified. He is dressed up. He's glorified. And then you have the bride who is brought into his presence. And that's really where you have the two becoming one, You have the glorification of them together and you have a new little kingdom formed in that covenant marriage. And so this is not that difficult to understand even though there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery and a lot of apocalyptic symbolism going on. We actually see this in our common lives over and over and over again. And this is the heritage of all the saints of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. You have lifted us up out of the dust of the earth. You've made us men and women of you, created in your image, renewed in your likeness. You've given us the example by which we should live and lead our lives. We pray that you give us strength as we um, play our part in responding to your grace and conform ourselves to the image of Christ. We pray that you bless us and give us the strength to do this through the the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blessing of your your peace. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray.